welcome to Controversies in Church History. This is Derek Taylor, and this episode we're gonna uh, we're gonna continue our series on the Traditionalist Movement, 1964 to the present. This is episode two, which I'm calling "Disobedient People, 1964 to 1974." Now, last time I uh, talked about the beginnings, the origins of this movement. What caused it? When get into the actual narrative today and talk about how the new mass was introduced, why that caused consternation among some people, but that only a few actively began to oppose the introduction of the new mass and the suppression of the old one, and why they did this. And this week we're also going to focus mostly on the lay side of this movement, how laymen reacted and what they did. Next time we'll do the clergy, which is a You'll see why I'll treat them as separate issues here, but also because lay reaction actually in some ways precedes, at least public lay reaction, precedes the clergy for reasons that will come apparent, I think. And so let me begin with an anecdote. We're talking about the introduction of the new Mass. John Casey, who was a lecturer in English at Cambridge University, told a story years ago about a student he had at Cambridge who was Polish early 1980s and this student had been an altar server when he was a boy for the Archbishop of Krakow in Poland. That Archbishop of course was Karol Wojtyla who eventually became Pope John Paul II. And the story this uh, student told him was this that after he'd uh, left uh, after he'd become John Paul II this student decided to go to Rome and look him up and see if he couldn't visit the Pope. And John Paul II, being the jovial person that he was, agreed to see him. And so, when he goes up to him, the first thing he did, according to the student, is sort of fist bump him in the chest. That's John Paul II doing this. And starts immediately saying the, the first words of the old Latin Mass to him. Intuibo adaltare dei. I will go unto the altar of God. Uh, I think the, I can't remember the, the next part. It's ad letificat juventutem meam, um, to the God who gives joy to my youth. It's the next Latin phrase that the server would give in the old rite. And they went through this until they got to the confidior, to the confession of faith in the Latin rite. And then according to this student, John Paul II then sort of stopped and shrugged and said, well, that's no good to us anymore. And the student said, no, Holy Father, and that's why I don't go to church anymore. And John Paul II immediately responded, well, don't blame me, it was that maniac, John Twenty-Third, that did this. <laughs> and I give you that story, which is, by the way, if that's what John Paul II actually said, is not accurate. <laughs> um, the reform of the liturgy is, is primarily the, the work of Paul II, Paul VI, I should say, uh, Pope Paul VI. John Twenty-Third, if you, don't, if you don't, uh, don't know, actually issued a year before he died uh, a document, an apostolic constitution called Veterum Sapientia, which actually called for greater study of Latin in seminaries and, and, and keeping Latin. He wasn't going to get rid of Latin. Uh, it, by the way, he issued this and everybody ignored it, so it didn't matter in the end, but it was not John Twenty-Third who did this, but it does give you some inkling. And we don't really know, by the way, what happened on the ground in terms of the effect, the sort of overnight changes of the Mass that happened, and how this affected people's faith. We have lots of anecdotes about people leaving the church when they changed this. No one's ever studied it, uh, as far as I'm aware, in a serious scholarly way. 
but it gives you an indication. So for some people, when they did this, that just kind of almost destroyed the faith for them. But how could this be? How could this, you know, how could this happen? And this, this goes back to the way this was done, partly, because what happens is in 1964, Paul VI, before the councils even ended, they've already, during the Second Vatican Council, issued the Constitution on the Liturgy, calling for reform, and he issues temporary norms in 1964 and allows people to start, start making changes even before the council's over. And so you get the first rollout of vernacular masses in 1964 at Advent. And to give you an idea of what kind of, what kind of changes we're talking about here, let me read a little excerpt from the historian James O'Toole about what this was like. And he gives this, uh, he gives this description, I'm quoting here. <clears throat> Parishioners sitting in their places knew, that morning knew something was different from the moment the Mass began. The week before, the priest and altar boys had entered in silence. Now everyone was expected to sing at least two verses of a processional hymn. The scriptural passages for the day were, were read aloud in the vernacular. The priest, standing behind a new altar set up in the middle of the sanctuary, still said some prayers in Latin, but the people were encouraged to recite others along with him, again in their own language. The distribution of communion was now different. In the past, the priest had repeated a prayer in Latin as he worked his way along the line of parishioners kneeling at the altar. He now paused in front of each parishioner in many places, standing rather than kneeling, held up the communion host so they could see it, and said, Corpus Christi, Body of Christ, to which the communicant responded, communicant responded, Amen. In a few months, this too would be said in English, and the altar rail itself would be gone. The church discontinued all Latin by 1969. Thus, James O'Toole. And so what happened was you had changes being made almost immediately. And we need to clarify who's doing what here, because this is important. Paul VI issues a motu proprio in 1964, creating a commission, or sometimes called a concilium, uh, the Concilium for Implementing the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which is established to implement the liturgy. And it has a lot of, in a lot of, in a lot of uh, independence. It works closely with Paul VI. Uh, and he issues this motu proprio sacrum liturgium, giving permission to do things like, again, open things up to the vernacular, doing stuff like this. Uh, you know, readings are, are to be done, you know, uh, facing the people. That was different. The new formula for dis distributing communion, which I just sort of um, illustrated there. Those sorts of things. Those sorts of things, as well as mass facing the people. That was introduced, not by the, the, the conciliar document itself, Sacrosanctum Concilium, but by this instruction that's given by this concilium called Inter in 1964, the first instruction on how to do this. But what happens is, besides these minimal changes, all of a sudden other things start getting introduced into the liturgy. Things like freestanding altars, removal of altar rails, uh, communion in the hand, which would become a, a flashpoint for traditionalists. But this was not commanded either by the Concilium or by Paul VI or by the Council. How did it get there? Basically, what happens in the period 1964 to 1970 is that you're going to have professional liturgists who are charged with implementing these reforms at the, the uh, level of bishops' conferences. 
basically taking the initiative to make changes on their own. A lot of these liturgists have been trained uh, in liturgical centers, liturgical training centers in Europe and the United States. I won't go into this in too much detail. There had been a liturgical movement at the beginning of the 20th century, which urged reforms uh, to the liturgy. And they had a lot of ideas, these professional liturgists. No one took them very seriously until the Second Vatican Council. And now that they had some authority, they began interpreting the documents of the Second Vatican Council and these instructions that this concilium issued to include these sorts of things. And that's how a sort of free-for-all will sort of begin in the, uh, after 1964. All of a sudden, people just start making changes like crazy, which is what's going to, of course, bring about the traditionalist movement. Now, it's this sort of thing, these sorts of uh, events. I'm not going to dwell too much on the, the craziness. I mentioned that last time. I'll go on a little bit more in a second here. But this is what leads to the formation of the first of these lay traditionalist groups. And the first one I've already mentioned before, I mentioned last time, the most important of these is uh, Una Voce, which can mean one voice. Uh, it's established in 1964 in, in Norway and then in France, then it spreads to different countries around Europe and then eventually the United States. And uh, again, its membership fluctuates over the years. It is still in existence. It is still the, the oldest and probably most important of these organizations. And it is a, it is basically a, uh, it's a lay organization, a purely volunteer organization, whose main interest at first is to preserve Latin in the liturgy. And this is something that's a, an important thing to note, I'll come back to this. Nobody really knows after 1964 what's coming, what kind of changes are going to come, when they're going to end. The confusion, I can't stress this enough, in the 1960s and 70s, the confusion really drives a lot of things, because there's just not a lot that's certain all of a sudden. Once the old mass seemingly is out, and we'll get this in a moment, how it formally is supposed to be suppressed, it leads to a lot of chaos. And uh, one of the things about this, they, they formed themselves as an international body in 1967. And they will, um, <clears throat> they will choose as, their, as the first president of Univoce, a man who I need to dwell on here, guy named Eric Maria Vermeeren de Savantham, Eric de Savantham, we'll call him, who I mentioned last time was an important figure in this movement, was a convert from Lutheranism, came from an old noble family in Germany, and he's important, well, partly because of his background. I mean, he is, I mentioned he's kind of a patrician type. Both his family, he grew up, born in 1919, he grew up in Germany during the era of the Nazis, both his family and the wife of, and the family of his wife, whom he marries, a, a countess named Elizabeth, who's also important in this, in the formation of Univece and, and its, uh, its uh, operation. She comes from an old Catholic family. He converts when he's 14. But they're all firmly anti-Nazi. And to give you an idea of what kind of, what kind of guy this is, he manages to get stationed uh, by the German, the Nazi government in Istanbul. He's trying to get out of the country and bring his wife with him, but they won't send his wife with him. So he had to go back to Germany and try to sneak her out. And what happens is they get stopped by the Gestapo as they're about to leave the country. And they have to uh, enlist the aid of an, a, 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 I it's a Hungarian ambassador to fly her out on a courier plane at the last minute to escape the Gestapo. 
Um, so this is a this is a fairly again this is an interesting person anyway. Any any in any event, um, the seventh and his wife make their way eventually to Britain, where eventually they had to start over. They they work as school teachers at first. He eventually gets a job with Lloyd's of London, working as an insurance, uh, working in insurance I should say, and he'll over time come to take over, come to work first in Zurich at the Zurich branch of Lloyd's of London, the famous. Uh, famous company, then take over the European branch in 1964. And this is important because it means that the seventh, and because of his background, because of his connections, is multilingual. Uh, he knows how to get around Europe. He knows people in circles that well. He knows how to, he knows people in the hierarchy. So he is perfectly placed to communicate the concerns of people who are affected by these changes and don't like them. And he probably is the most important one of the two or three most important laymen involved in the early um, traditionalist movement. Now, um, just to get that aside, I'll get to them in a moment, what they do early on. But if you wonder what they do, they basically are, you know, petitioning, we'll see in a moment, they mostly, mostly, I guess you could call them a pressure group to a certain degree, but they are an association of lay faithful to make known the concerns of the, the lay faithful about this. That's something, by the way, that the Second Vatican Council calls the lay faithful to do, <laughs> is to organize and get them involved. Well, here you go. You have a lay organization doing this. And it is worth repeating that in 1965, again, what Una Voce is for is still, it's mostly just about Latin, because, as I mentioned last time, there was an interim missile that was issued in 1965, which was, I think, if they had stopped there with the reforms, there would be no traditionalist movement. Yes, they changed some things, they turned some things into the vernacular, they added some prayers here and there, they took some away. But that, that, that inner liturgy was much more in line, I think, than what the Council wanted. And in fact, to give you an idea of how fluid everything is, let me read this passage for you briefly. This is from 1965, from a cleric who had been a bishop at the Council, talking about the Reformed liturgy in 1965, as they, under, as they understood the reform that was going on in 1965. Quote, In my humble opinion, uh, two such reforms seemed useful, some of the things that the, the Council called for. Uh, first, the rites of the first part of the Mass, that is, and also a few translations into the, into the vernacular. The priest coming near the, near the faithful, communicating with them, and praying and singing with them, and therefore standing in the pulpit, saying the collect, the epistle, and the gospel in their language, the priest singing in the divine, uh, singing, singing in the traditional melodies, the Kyrie and the Gloria, the creed along with the faithful. These are so many good reforms that give back to that part of the Mass its true finality, unquote. The bishop who wrote those words in 1965 was Marcel Lefebvre, the founder of the Society of St. Pius X. He'd been at the council, he'd had some problems with things at the council, but he'd signed the document, Sacrosanctum Concilium. He was actually for reform. What's going to happen after 1964-1965, however, is things are going to go berserk. And just things on the ground, but also things in among professional liturgists. I mentioned before, have been sort of jonesing for decades to try to get their hands on the liturgy, to, in, to you know, implement all their good ideas. And just to give you an idea of what people are writing uh, in the uh, 1960s about this, if you, uh, just a few examples here. In 1966, uh, uh, one Benedictine monk 
said that worship should be characterized above all by spontaneity. He suggested that a successful mass might be one which, quote, generated the fun of a successful cocktail party, unquote. A Jesuit would characterize the old traditional liturgy as being, quote, a breeding ground for atheism because it seemed to make God irrelevant to life, unquote. Later on, uh, an editor of a uh, journal called Worship uh, said that contemporary, contemporary man does not deny the transcendental, but he seeks it within the life of this world. There is no hope for liturgical, liturgical reform, which would equate the secular with the profane, etc. Uh, another um, journal, Concilium, that's founded in 1969 by European theologians, rejected what they call, quote, mythical symbols which lend a magic superstitious character to public prayer and devotion, the unhealthy climate of escapist dreams, unquote. They called for, quote, the symbols of a freedom which creates its own forms, its own interhuman dialogue, where man represents God and finds his image of God, unquote. Another uh, writer, a Spanish Benedictine, writing in the same liturgy, dismissed what he called the, quote, archaic and meaningless, uh, unquote, trappings of the old liturgy, and warned that uh, using it would create, quote, the practicing type of Catholic rather than the believing type of Catholic, unquote. And, uh, and this is another quotation from that same author, quote, only a god of the dead could be pleased with such glacial homage and the faithful who do not rebel on seeing the communitary enclosed community, I guess, enclosed in such a funereal apparatus, probably believe not in God, not in the God of rights, but in the rights themselves. And you have, in general, liturgists writing uh, things like this all the time, that, well, that old liturgy is terrible, it's the reason why people, people no longer believe in the faith, we need to get rid of it and create it and replace it with something new and spontaneous and etc., etc., and whatever. People talking about things like desacralization. It needs to be desacralized because modern man can't understand archaic rituals anymore. All this sort of, these sorts of things. This type of stuff is in the air, which is why on the ground, again, part of the reason why on the ground all hell breaks loose. You have people, for example, writing Eucharistic prayers and putting them in the liturgy. You have... This is the beginnings of folk masses, of course. People putting, <laughs> literally, you know, actually it's not really folk music, it's pop folk music into the liturgy. You have all sorts of things going on. I won't go through all this, but all this liturgical madness is paralleled by all of a sudden theologians, academic theologians, beginning to question basic aspects of the faith. Things like clerical celibacy, which is again a discipline, but it's been, uh, you know, it's an old discipline, ancient one. But also things like the nature of the Eucharist. Theologians like Edward Skilibex, uh, Karl Rahner, who are famous at the Council, progressive theologians, begin, you know, trying to, you know, adapt uh, the notion of the real presence to modern man who can't believe in that anymore. In fact, so much so that in 1965, Paul VI issues an encyclical called Mysterium Fidei, which echoed, tried to reiterate the traditional notion of the, of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. Uh, the next uh, year, in 1966, he sends a letter called Sacrificium Laudis to the uh, heads of religious orders across the world, urging them to retain the Latin language in their Liturgy of the Hours. So you have all this stuff going on, which, uh, again, I can't stress this enough, all this stuff is, is going to be sort of swirling around in people's minds and uh, sort of running together, both the doctrinal confusion and the liturgical confusion.
At the same time, that concilium I mentioned before is going to work. It spends the next several years from 1964 to 1969 experimenting with a new, trying to create a new missile, a new set of liturgical books. And in fact, in 1967, it will give a private celebration of this experimental liturgy in front of the Roman Synod. If you know what the Roman Synod is, Roman Synod is this uh, advisory body of bishops that was created after Vatican II for, to advise the Pope. And he presents this, they celebrate this, this new revised liturgy, which as I mentioned last time is, is actually not a revision of the old liturgy, it's, it is a brand new missal, as you will see. And um, he does it for this synod, and it basically bombs. <laughs> uh, a third of the synod fathers give their approval to it. Uh, a third say no. The other third abstain. And from what we can tell, the other third abstain basically because they didn't want to anger Paul VI, who really wanted this reform. He is simpatico with, simpatico with the secretary of, the, uh, of this uh, concilium. Annibal Bunini, about wanting to create a whole new rite, for reasons that I'll talk about in a moment. They think that the creation of this new missile is, not a, is, is something they need to do, basically. And so this is all going on. And this is all going on in, in the context of, of course, descent on other questions like moral questions. It's 1968, of course, is the year of Humanae Vitae, and the widespread rejection of it by not just lay people, but clergy, even bishops. The issuance of the Dutch Catechism in 1966. The Dutch Catechism is this catechism put out by Dutch bishops, which is very risque. <laughs> uh, it's it's that kind of uh, it's that kind of it, it, it questions puts into question a lot of basic doctrines, and this is all taking place, of course, within the scope of the the great cultural revolutions of the year 1968. I won't belabor this student protest across the world the crackdown on Hungarian independence movement in the, uh, by the Soviet Union, the Cultural Revolution in China. Worldwide, things going crazy, right? And so it begins to sort of form the traditionalists into a body unto themselves is, in fact, the promulgation of this new missile in 1969. This is the one that most people, of course, if you're listening, this is the one you've worshipped with your whole life or something like it. <clears throat> And uh, he issues his apostolic constitution, as Paul VI, the Missale Romanum, in which uh, basically he he means this to essentially replace the old one. Now this is a this is a key point of contention among liturgical scholars. At one point in the document, Paul says, "Quote: We wish that these our decrees and prescriptions may be firm and effective now and in the future, notwithstanding, to the extent necessary, the apostolic constitutions and ordinance issued by our predecessors." and other prescriptions, even those deserving particular mention and derogation." Unquote. I say this because he clearly intends this, this missile to be the missile of the church. But he doesn't come out and say, literally, I hereby abrogate the old liturgy and forbid it and suppress it. And this is going to be the contention among traditionalists is that he never did that. He never abrogated it officially. And that only the Pope has a right to abrogate certain liturgies, and they're also going to argue that this one shouldn't be abrogated. That's a separate issue. This will be a a a, a, a um, this will be a a, a, a point of contention. 
And that same year, before it goes into effect, he issues this in the, I want to say, oof, maybe May of that year, I can't recall. But later in the year, it's supposed to go into effect, go into effect, this new missile. He gives a couple of general audiences to, to Paul VI. Uh, one on November 19th of that year, 1969, number, one on November 26th. It was scheduled to go into um, effect November 30th, first day of Advent, 1969, the new missile. And he makes, I'm going to read this to you just because it gives you the basic sense of the arguments he wants to make, why he's doing this. He says in the 19th that, and I'm summarizing, only the, the expression of faith is going to change with the Mass. The substance will be the same, the structure will be the same, it's the same Mass. And the reason why he's doing this, he gives several reasons over two different you know, talks. One big reason is he wants to make the Mass easier to understand, clearer. He thinks by doing this, and this is the argument, these are arguments made by these liturgical reformers who are allied with him, is that this will make for better understanding by the laity, and they will be more, they will be more inclined to actively participate in the liturgy. He also says that this is not a, quote, arbitrary act, I'm quoting there, and that the new liturgy has been created by, quote, unquote, authoritative experts, and therefore is to be trusted. Not only because it's by authoritative experts, but also because he stresses it's demanded by the council. Paul VI and the reformers insist that this is exactly what the council wanted. He'll say things like this again uh, uh, on the 26th, that was on the 19th, um, that um, it's necessary for obedience to the council that we do this because the council called for not just uh, making things easy, easier for people to understand, it called for adaptation. We have to adapt things to the modern situation. Uh, losing Latin will be a great loss, but the vernacular is better because it is more quote-unquote apostolic and makes for better understanding by quote-unquote modern people. This is actually worth quoting this passage. He says, and he by the way admits, uh, Paul VI actually has a genuine love of Latin, although there's more involved in all this. He says, quote, understanding the prayer is worth more than the silken garments in which it is royally dressed. Participation by the people is worth more, particularly, particularly participation by modern people, so, plain, so fond of plain language which is easily understood and converted into everyday speech." Unquote. And this is, this is the kind of argument you hear from, from the reformers and from Paul VI. Modern people require modern rites. They can't understand archaic rituals. We have to replace it with something new for the purposes, and again, for the purposes of, this is a pastoral justification is my point. This is not primarily, as far as I can tell, a theological justification. He never comes out and says, well, the old mass was evil, we just didn't know it, so we're going to have to replace this. Nope, it's pastoral, right? He's making a pastoral judgment about this. And Annabel Bunini, who's his, uh, the secretary of the concilium, makes the same points, uh, both in his, at the time and in his memoirs, that the, one of the big rationales for this liturgy is it needs to be adapted. The old liturgy is too rigid. It's too immobile. That's a term people use, it's immobilism. It has to be, you know, they have in their minds ideas, very historicist ideas, if you know what this is, of evolution. The liturgy evolves over the time, and it hasn't been evolving fast enough. We need to make it evolve faster to catch up with modern people. Uh, Bunini actually makes an interesting 
comparison as well in this because he mentions the um, having a more adaptable liturgy for things like missions, right? Among peoples in Africa and places like that. You need to have a liturgy that's adaptable, flexible. One that can be, you know, done in a variety of different ways. And instead of like the old one, which was, again, essentially it's, it's, it's uh, genius, if you like, was to be the same everywhere. Now you're going to be adaptive are you know, the major ideas about this. Thus is this reform introduced. And I need to stress, by the way, this shocked a lot of people. Uh, no one, a lot of people weren't aware that the Vatican was planning on rolling out a new missile. And in fact, this is going to be one of the things that effectively sets off this traditionalist movement. Because what happens is, 1969, they publish this, this missile. They publish a general instruction to go with it. The general instruction on the Roman Missal. <clears throat> and this is actually going to provoke the first intervention by Una Voce indirectly. Because a couple of women, a woman writer whose name escapes me in Italy, Italian members of Una Voce, uh, contact a couple of theologians at the uh, Angelicum and other places in, in Rome to write a critique of the new Mass. And they go and find, they write this critique. <clears throat> it's called a short critical study of the, of the new liturgy of the Novus Order or whatever. <clears throat> you can find it on the internet. And they find two cardinals willing to sign off on it. Cardinal Antonio Bacci and Cardinal uh, Ottaviani. Ottaviani had been the former prefect of the Holy Office, what is today the CDF. He was also blind as a bat and didn't know what he was signing, but he signed it anyway. And this was published, and it severely critiques the the new missile. And it has a lot of critiques here, but I'll go through, I'll, 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 again, I'll list them and show you why they're, why they're upset. They, they'll particularly be upset about the, the general instruction, which I'll come to in a moment, but they have other grievances. They think that the prayers of the new missile downplay the real presence and the sacrifice of the Mass. They think that it makes the priest seem less like a mediator than a mere presider. Again, like a Protestant minister, basically. They also make the, the point that all these changes to the prayers, to, all these other, to gestures, they, they complain, by the way, about the elimination of gestures, things like eliminating the number of times the priest kneels before, before the altar. Right? Because they think that indicates, oh wait, that'll, that'll send the signal that people don't believe in the real presence. They also object, of course, to, this is a big point of contention with all the people who critique the new missile, is that it basically displaces the old Roman canon. If you don't know what the Roman canon is, that's the, that's the only Eucharistic prayer that the old Roman liturgy has ever had, basically. And if you want, with the Eucharistic prayer is the prayer that the priest prays over the Eucharistic elements, the bread and the wine, to invoke uh, the Holy Spirit, or to invoke God to accept them and have them become the body of Christ. And what the new missile does is it, it introduces optional prayers, which again is uh, they, this is something that horrifies these. By the way, the Roman canon is the oldest part of the old missile. It is old, right? It goes back to the fourth century. So all these things, in their minds, like, this is this is basically a sort of break with the church's tradition. But it also is more important, because uh, they complain a lot about how it breaks with the intentions of the Council of Trent. When they had last revised 
the Roman Missal. Because one of the things that they were complaining about was, one of the reasons why we call sometimes the Tridentine Missal the Tridentine Missal, is because the Council of Trent ordered the Pope to make revisions to the Mass, to make clear, make sure that it expressed clearly the doctrines of the faith, like the real presence and the sacrifice of Christ. And the reason why was, back in the 15th, 16th century, people were going around and making changes to the liturgy in local places. Um, and not only that, of course, the Protestants had made changes to the, to the Mass, and they wouldn't prevent confusion. And so that's why Paul V, uh, St. Pius V, issued that missal to make those things clear. Not to change anything, not to make a whole new missal, but to do that. That's why also why he abrogated certain local liturgies that were less than 200 years old, because they, they, they needlessly multiplied the faith and made things more confusing. And so it seemed like to these theologians who are making this critique that they were making all these changes which were going to feed into this confusion which was obviously going on at the time. And this sometimes become a, becomes a point of contention because they, they criticize the, the, the general instruction which is of itself a, a, a sort of, <laughs> a sort of um, um, uh, even more problematic really than the missile itself. And the reason that sets them off is, well, what they still refer to, a lot of traditionalists, is the seventh article, the seventh paragraph of that original general instruction of the Roman Missal for 1969. And uh, I'll read it to you. This is, this is what the, this, uh, this actually says in the Roman instruction. It says, quote, The Lord's Supper or Mass is the sacred meeting or congregation of the people of God assembled, the priest presiding, to celebrate the memorial of the Lord. For this reason, Christ's promise applies eminently to such a local gathering of Holy Church, where two or three come together in my name, there I am in their midst. It's quoting Matthew, unquote. That, of course, if you think about that for a second, sounds a lot like a Protestant version of the Eucharist, which is one of the things that made the people who wrote this critique go ballistic. <laughs> it sounds like you're turning this into a communal meal. A lot of people are saying this stuff. Theologians are saying this stuff. This looks like Rome has gone over to the dark side, basically. And in fact, there'll be a, a big to-do about this. I'll get to this in a moment, but this intervention actually uh, forces the, uh, the Rome to withdraw that, uh, that original missile. And in fact, uh, it, for a long time, it was hard to find that original uh, general instruction of the Roman missile, even in Latin. Uh, because it was so controversial, because not only did it, I, I just read you that passage where it describes the Mass as basically a, a Protestant a memorial service, it, it also never mentioned, hardly mentioned sacrifice at all, and it never mentions the Council of Trent at all, which turned off alarm bells, again, in the minds of some of these traditionalists, and like, this is what's going to form them. And, and a lot of those critiques I just mentioned in that uh, intervention, which is sometimes called the Altaviani intervention, even though he really didn't have much to do with it, uh, they're they're going to be central critiques of the new liturgy to this day among people who are traditionalists, uh, both ones who are in communion with Rome and outside of it. They think there are problems, deficiencies in the new missal. And so Rome withdraws that general instruction in the missal, and they rewrite it, and they actually <laughs> they change that paragraph specifically to make it say that the Mass is a sacrifice. They reintroduce um, mentions of Trent in the general instruction, and they re-promulgate it again in 1970. <laughs> and in fact, when they do this, a lot of people who had been critical of the initial text pronounced themselves satisfied. 
including Cardinal Ottaviani and many others. And in fact, this is the thing that's going to separate the traditionalist out, is that many agree with, a, with Cardinal Siri, who's been a, a leader of the more conservative bishops at Vatican II, who wrote that the council did, quote, did not ask for any such revolution, unquote. They recognized that what this, this new missile represented was a break with tradition. Um, whatever, whatever way you want to sort of justify it. And by the way, most people, most traditionalists, I think, recognize the Pope has a right to create new rights. But this is something different, because this looks like an attempt, as we'll see, it will be, to suppress the old mass totally. And so Cardinal Siri says this, and yet he also said, now because it was part of church law, all you could do was obey. And this is where you're going to have the, the new mass becoming the sort of dividing line, the new missile becoming the dividing line for people like Unoboche, because this is going to set them on a path. Like, we, we, wait, we, we still have a problem with this. And um, to give you, to wind up with this, uh, this part of, the, this, part of this, uh, this episode here, in uh, 1970, Unoboche has its first uh, international meeting in, in New York City. And what happens is, uh, Eric DeSavon gives a lecture, gives a talk to them. And I want to read some excerpts from it, because it kind of captures what the most articulate, the least crazy parts of the traditionalist movement uh, are saying, and that they want to uh, put out there. So let me... Um, uh, let me uh, let me read part of this, and um, he goes. And he hits on the head here because, of course, <clears throat> well, let me read this to you. He addresses this in this in this uh, in this speech. The promulgation of the new Ordo Misse brought us face to face with what is fast becoming the loyal Catholics' problem number one: how to combine some familial submission to the Holy Father with respectful but open criticism of some of his acts. He hits the nail on the head, because, of course, this is in the Pope's remit to create new liturgies, right? Uh, as you're going to see in a moment, though, some of the things Paul VI does are, in fact, without precedent. He goes on to say, Univoce should strive to obtain the maintenance of the Tridentine Mass, quote, as one of the recognized rites of the, in the liturgical life of the Universal Church, unquote. He's actually referring to the, the, the Vatican II document on that liturgy there. He's quoting that goes on to say, but this was not tantamount to a condemnation of the new ordo. He's talking about what they believe in. By being for the Tridentine rite of the Mass, we are not against the new ordinary of the Mass in a sense of outright rejection. Just as we were not against the vernacular when we pleaded for the retention of liturgical Latin. The Church has always known a plurality of recognized rites and of liturgical language. But that pluralism, to use the modern word, grew out of respect for tradition. Thus, St. Pius V himself, when he introduced the uniform of the Missal at the Council of Trent, specifically confirmed the legitimacy of certain other rites of venerable origin and usage. And so you have this, and he's talking about uh, this, what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm stopping quoting there. He's talking about the situation they're in, about what's going on, all the craziness. He says, quote, We are witnessing, just, uh, just witnessing a repetition, both of the proliferation of unauthorized texts and of Episcopal inability to cope with it. He's referring to the Reformation. He goes on, Perhaps you may also see a repetition of that act of wisdom, which just over 400 years ago made the bishops asked to draw up and enact in perpetuity the uniform ritual of the Mass, which was promulgated in 1570. He's hoping for that they'll let the new Mass, the old Mass, live. 
He goes on, the pluralism of today is of a different ilk. It is the watchword and war cry of those who want to set tradition aside. That is why, in the midst of a new proliferation of liturgical rites and text, we witness the practical suppression of the one rite, which in perfect manner enshrines the Church's most sublime treasure, the holy mystery of the Mass. So far, the suppression is achieved de facto only and not de jure. That means in fact and not in law. Indeed, it would be unthinkable for the old Ordo Missae ever to be officially forbidden. To justify this, one would have to argue that it was in some manner wrong or bad, either doctrinally or pastorally. To prove either would be tantamount to denying that the Church is guided by the Holy Ghost. It is therefore inadmissible even to suggest that the old Ordo might be rightfully outlawed. And he uh, goes on to mention all this. He goes on to mention, you know, the situation they're in. But this is the basic argument. That, that you really can't deny. You can't, there's no good reason, theologically speaking, to get rid of the old right. And it can't be suppressed for purely pastoral reasons, I think, is the response of, of, uh, of de Saventham to what I just mentioned earlier with the arguments of Paul VI. It's not evil. Why should it be suppressed? Uh, doctrinally or pastorally, what was wrong with it that it needed to be, you know, suppressed totally. Uh, and he goes on to mention, to go into, I won't read the whole thing to you, you can find it on the internet yourself, but one of the things he says is, and this is why I called this episode Disobedient People, is they're, of course, they're in the position of being, you know, basically made disobedient if they don't, you know, and they do accept the new Mass, they're trying to, they're trying to accept that, and they still want to retain the old Mass. He rattles off a bunch of different documents that have been issued by Paul VI uh, since, the, uh, since the, the council, which have been meant to sort of curb abuses, which have been ignored. <laughs> uh, he goes on to mention all the different doctrines that people have uh, rejected, which have been ignored. He's thinking about things like Humanae Vitae, and he's thinking about things like um, uh, all the things that have been issued since the, the, the council. In other words, they're being accused of disobedience just for being faithful to tradition. And I think this isn't right. Uh, and he goes on to say, basically, uh, that all these other documents have been disregarded, and I'm quoting him here now, totally disregarded by lay people, by priests, by bishops and cardinals, and indeed at the very top itself, for more than one reigning uh, pontiff, has gone against the clear injunctions of his immediate predecessors. I'll leave you with one last quotation here. He says, It is totally wrong to label us as reactionaries, as people who cling stubbornly to the ways of yesterday, whose minds are closed and necessary and beneficial reform. Uh, because they are basically trying to hold on to that heritage and have it be reformed in an organic way, in a way that's consonant with the tradition. What they don't see in the new reforms is something that is consonant with it. And so that's going to be where we leave off in uh, 1970 with the creation of Univoce and the promulgation of that missile. And so you have this situation in which there's all this chaos, liturgically, doctrinally, into which Rome drops this new missile. And this is what sort of, uh, this is going to, you know, cause the traditionalist milieu to coalesce into an identifiable group within the church. And I want to stop here, pause in 1970, the narrative, so to give you an idea, there are other 
organizations involved, people involved in this movement besides just Unavoce. I, I, I partly focus on them because we have access to their uh, access to their you know um, to their narrative and everything, and they're important in an international sense. But you also have uh, you know the creation of what I might call a traditionalist sphere. Uh, mostly in just in terms of writing and uh, and, and different organs in the press, uh, there are, are several different newspapers, journals that sort of carry this sort of critique of the new liturgy, and in general the critique of things that are going on in the church just after the Second Vatican Council. Uh, a couple I mentioned I think last week in the, or the last episode when I talked about the origins of this, a couple of these more prominent ones precede the council itself. Uh, in England, uh, a journal called Christian Order was founded in 1960 by a Jesuit priest named Paul Crane. It will publish numerous articles, um, especially by important writers who are important to this movement, like Michael Davies. I think it's still in existence. I think you can still order issues of Christian Order. I believe so. I think they still have a website. Uh, and then Itinéraire, the uh, French journal, where Jean Madéron and Louis Saint-Laurent, two of the more prominent French critics of the post-conciliar church and the liturgy, new liturgy, will write, was founded in 1956. You have those in the, uh, uh, in the European side. In America, you have, well, there's actually one other one I'll mention in, the, in Europe, and that's uh, Approaches, which is founded in 1965, one of the first ones, the first one, I should say, yeah, following the council by Hamish, Hamish Fraser, who was this fascinating journalist figure, uh, it's kind of his baby. It's his lone, sort of a lone gunman. Again, convert from um, atheism, a former communist. And he, uh, in approaches, he will deal, deal with a lot of, you know, purely secular political things, but also talk about the liturgy and the changes in the church and be very critical of it. He does an expose, for example, in the uh, early 1970s on the shenanigans at a, at a, a seminary in Ireland. And so those sorts of things are in his remit. But you also have American... Uh, organs of traditionalism. The first is called Triumph, which is founded in 1966 by Brent Bozell, mentioned last time, convert from Omaha, Nebraska, in fact. And he helped co-found National Review, uh, the conservative magazine with William Buckley, who, by the way, Buckley was also disturbed by the, by the changes in the liturgy, but he founds Triumph kind of as a an alternative in some ways to to Buckley's fusion. If you know what fusionism, I won't drop that term, but Buckley tried to sort of combine Catholic social teaching with a sort of libertarian view of economics and a, a more sanguine view of American political life. Whereas a Triumph magazine, which only lasts for 10 years from 1966 to 1976, was a much more heavy Catholic critique of American society from a traditionalist perspective, also published articles about the liturgy from people like, well, someone I'll get to in a moment, Dietrich von Hildebrand. So that's uh, one way. The other major uh, major uh, vehicle of the press for the traditionalist sphere, which is still in existence, is The Remnant, which is founded in 1967, still going strong. Uh, this was founded, God, I can't remember the names, unfortunately, off the top of my head. The Remnant broke away from a much older magazine called The Wanderer, which had been founded back in 1867. It was a German language, uh, Catholic German language uh, weekly, uh, and eventually became English only. It was run by the Matt family, and in fact, you had two brothers, and I can't remember their names. I think Walter's the one that broke away. I can't, I'm getting this wrong, but you can look up on the internet. 
Um, the one stayed with the Wanderer because they wanted to be more loyal to Vatican II and the Council. Uh, but uh, the remnant becomes, as the title, as the title kind of indicates, those who were most alienated from uh, the post-conciliar church, who are most critical of it. And so they carry on, they'll, and they'll carry news of, they'll carry articles by uh, prominent figures in this very tiny movement. And to this day, actually, uh, if you go there, you can still find, they're still, they're still at it <laughs> uh, more than half a century later. So they're kind of in that uh, part of this to this day. You also have writers at the time, especially, who will decry changes in the, uh, uh, in the post-conciliar church. People like Michel de Saint-Pierre, who's a French writer, um, writes a novel called The Suffering Priests, uh, which, again, deals with this sort of thing. Maybe more spectacularly, the, the novelist Tito Cassini writes a book uh, called La Tunica Stracciata, which means the torn tunic, which sort of denounces the new liturgy, uh, think, sort of accuses it of being uh, a cause of the, the post-conciliar chaos. And Cassini, uh, again, it's a really critical book, in fact, it's so critical. Basically, it's aimed at the, uh, not Anna Balbini, who's merely the secretary, but the head of the concilium for implementing the liturgy, and in Cardinal Lacaro. Uh, in that, uh, in his book, he addresses this cardinal as, I think I have that right, yes. Uh, he he um, addresses him as, I want to have this here. <laughs> yeah, he addresses uh, Cardinal Lacaro in his book as Luther Redivivus. <laughs> which means Luther revived in Latin. So it's a real caustic attack on the new liturgy. And it causes a sensation in the Italian press. It's quoted everywhere. And eventually it, get, I mean, it, it makes the uh, cardinal so upset, he actually leaves Rome for a few weeks. He's so upset because the pope won't do anything about it. Eventually the pope, in a private audience with the members of this commission, denounces Cassini, not by name, but, uh, but it, uh, it draws a lot of attention to this for the first time in Europe. So you do have people sort of going after this. You also have people in uh, in uh, in France arguing over the Ottaviani intervention. Uh, it's uh, published by Jean Mabiron in, in, in Terreur, and there's a response to it issued by a, a French priest uh, the, the, the next year, which again Mabiron and his colleagues respond to. So you have this becoming uh, blown up as an, uh, in uh, in the press outside of the channel we've already talked about. In terms of organizations, there's not really a lot of organizations that, that fuel this traditionalist sphere besides the one I've already mentioned. There's a few uh, that you'll get going. Again, it's mostly people advocating for this, but just a few things, and I'll mention a few here because they're worth mentioning in terms of organizational support. They don't have a lot of it. The, there is no traditionalist, you know, well, well, with one exception, I'll talk about this in a second, and that's in France, but outside of France, there's not a lot of institutions on the ground ready to support something like a movement in the church like this. One of these is going to be a Brazilian organization uh, called Tradition, Family, and Property, which is a political social organization founded in 1960 by a gentleman named Plinio Correa de Oliveira, a conservative Catholic out of the old Catholic action movement, uh, someone who's trying to, you know, take the social reign of Christ into the world, that type of thing. And it basically attempts to, to you know, get legislative protection to protect the traditional family, social arraignment, through, you know, through political, political initiatives, supporting political candidates, and educational stuff. 
And this organization is, is pretty, this is probably as political an organization that actually directly supports traditionalism in our, in the sense we're defining it here. Uh, he writes a manifesto, does the uh, Olivera, which is basically kind of revolutionary. <laughs> it, literally, it's, it's like a, I can't remember the name of it, something like a, you know, handbook for counter-revolutionaries or something like this, but it's explicitly monarchist in orientation. And I bring this up only to mention that this doesn't really have much, there's not really a, a huge overlap with this organization and the, the liturgy. Uh, there is on the fringes in the lay sector, more in the lay sector than the, uh, the clerical sector of the traditionalist movement. And I bring this up because one of the things people will accuse the traditionalist movement of is being a sort of connected with far-right political groups. And as far as I can tell, this is probably the most prominent one. And even they, they're, they're not necessarily that political. They do a lot of educational stuff, scouting, things like that. So, But they're in that milieu. Uh, de Oliveira was friendly with conservative prelates during the Second Vatican Council. So that's in that, in that vein. Another organization that comes out of this is uh, out of this post-conciliar period. That's part of this movement, I, I call it. It would be the Roman, Roman Forum which was a non-profit, which, which was organized in 1968 by Dietrich von Hildebrand, um, professor at that point, a philosopher at uh, Fordham University in New York. And in particular, it was, it was founded to defend, broadly speaking, Catholic doctrine and the Catholic culture. And if you don't know von Hildebrand, I mentioned him last time. Von Hildebrand was a great philosopher, convert to the faith from uh, Lutheranism had been an opponent of, of the Nazis when he was in Germany before fleeing. And uh, we'll come back to him because he's really important uh, in the uh, history of this. Supports Uno Voce. Uh, even though he's a, definitely a man of the council, he doesn't have any problem with that for the most part. And this uh, Roman Forum, basically all it is, it begins as a series of lectures. It has changed its character. Uh, since the 1990s, it's expanded to include things like retreats, you know, week-long seminars, a little more expansive now. They're still still ongoing. They just had their, their last one this past July. In, it usually takes place in Italy. It took place in Long Island this year. You can actually find the recordings, I think. YouTube, maybe? I don't know. They're, they're on there somewhere. You should definitely see the lectures. Some of them are very interesting. But it's still, still around, providing intellectual weight to, I guess you could say, to traditionalism. And then finally, the French scene is very different. I'm only going to describe it briefly. There are more organizations already in place in France to support with something like this because you already had, you know, organizations like Cité Catholique, which was founded by Jean Ousset in the 19, I want to say 30s. I don't have it in my notes, but it's an older sort of conservative Catholic organization. Again, it comes out of that Action Française uh, milieu, and there's some of that counter-revolutionary stuff already in place there, where you do have, again, interior stuff like that, where there are already vehicles in place for something like this, and you do have new ones being founded in the post-conciliar era, one that's still prominent today, uh, was called Mouvement de la Jeunesse Catholique de France, which was founded in 1970 by Christian Marquand and a few of his friends. It's, as the name uh, implies, is a, is a sort of uh, youth organization for traditional people like the traditional liturgy. So that's a form of the, uh, uh, involving this. And then also something like Credo, which is an organization founded by Michel de Saint-Pierre in 1974, which organized, I believe, is the originator of the organ or uh, 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 the organ original organizer of the pilgrimages, uh, traditionalist pilgrimages to places like Chartres 
And this is one of the other ways they have, what they do. They don't have a lot of organizations. They will organize pilgrimages to places like Walsingham in England, a former medieval site which was rebuilt in the 1960s. They'll organize pilgrimages. You'll have, you know, a traditional mass at the end of it and stuff like this to, you know, support each other this way spiritually as well as uh, in other terms. So you have these things all being part of this milieu. And then finally, this also, from the late 60s into early 70s, until things get come more sorted out, you're going to have people who are, I call them fellow travelers, they're not necessarily traditionalists, with maybe one exception, who are writing responses not just to the, the liturgical reforms, but also just to the, the post-conciliar chaos, who voice similar criticisms to a certain degree. Uh, people who are not, who are definitely not, most of them, uh, traditionalists. Uh, and I happen to be, at this point in my life, a connoisseur of post-conciliar screeds, <laughs> which I kind of like because they decry and they try to analyze what's going on in the post-conciliar period. Uh, people like Jacques Maritain. Jacques Maritain is definitely not a traditionalist, or definitely was not. And traditionalists don't like him <laughs> for a variety of reasons. And But he reacted badly to the sort of chaos uh, after Vatican II, partly because he was one of the sort of on the more progressive side of Vatican II, but he roundly condemned a lot of the things that went on after the council, wrote a book called The Peasant of the Garonne, in which, pardon my language, he was really pissed about what was going on, uh, as did another person who was involved in the council and supportive of it, but really didn't like where it went afterwards, Father Louis Boyer, a great uh, liturgical scholar, convert from uh, from uh, uh, from Lutheranism as well, uh, wrote a book in 1969 called The Decomposition of Catholicism. His is really fun. On the boy, he had a really sharp tongue. And so he really lambasts a lot of what's going on in the, uh, the post-conciliar period. Uh, and then in 1974, James Hitchcock, an American historian, publishes a book called Recovery of the Sacred, more specifically about the liturgy in which he criticizes roundly the, the liturgical reformers and some of their excesses, even though he never goes in the direction that people like von Hildebrand will go in. And he actually publishes what I think are still some of the best critiques and analyses of what's going on in the immediate aftermath of the Council. 1967, he publishes Trojan Horse and the City of God, and then 1973, The Devastated Vineyard. Definitely worth reading. You can find them floating around the internet. I won't dwell on them too much, but von Hildebrand was very critical of both post-conciliar reforms, he was a supporter of the council, obviously. He didn't have much criticism for that, but he does criticize the liturgy, and he is a, he is a supporter of the old right. His is a very measured, very scholarly, I mean, scholarly, it's actually very accessible, but it's a, a very informed critique in many ways of what's going on. And then finally, 1974, you even have someone like Jean Donyelu. Jean Donyelu is actually a bête noir of traditionalists for a lot of reasons. He's a um, long story, another, another, for another episode perhaps. He was one of the reformers whose work inspired Vatican II, fairly progressive. But he also turned against some of the craziness in the post-conciliar church. And before he died in 1974... He was publicly calling for the restoration of Latin in the new rite. Again, he didn't care for the old rite, but um, at that point, there were people who were saying, that, we know we get the, need to get Latin back in the liturgy. It had been totally vernacularized by that point. And I must say, there even, and I'll come back to this a little bit, there are even criticisms of the new Catholic rite from non-Catholics. I'll give you a couple, mostly from Anglicans. Anglicans have a better appreciation for liturgy than most Protestants, and 
even from that angle, you have people sensing something wrong with the reforms. Most famously, if you know who the poet, W.H. Alden was, great poet, there's a little letter he wrote floating around the internet. You can find it and Google it. Where he's actually criticizing all the new, because not just the Catholic Church, but the Episcopal Church, the Church of England is doing famously its own liturgical reforms in the late 1960s. And he basically trashes all the reforms, not the reforms, but their translations. Especially, he has very, he basically at one point says, I'm trying to remember from, from memory here, the poor Roman Catholics are left with an almost unspeakable liturgy <laughs> in terms of the English translation. Because, of course, the, the new rite isn't, of course, in Latin, but it gets translated fairly poorly into to the vernacular in many places. And so this is also something people are criticizing. But there are also other Anglicans making criticisms as well. So it is not just alone that traditionalists are uh, in making criticisms, but they have the most far-reaching, which is why they become controversial. So to return to the narrative for a moment, now that we're getting back into it, What's Rome during, doing amidst all of this? I remember I talked about the chaos in the late 1960s. What is it doing? Well, Rome is trying to rein things in. They issue multiple instructions uh, for the implementation of the liturgy. In fact, they will keep issuing instructions all the way up to the 2000s for the instruction of the new liturgy. Uh, to try to get a, a handle on these sorts of things. But they also issue documents meant to curb abuses. Starting in 1969, they actually uh, sent a letter to the bishops of the world and asked them about uh, a practice that, that has gained momentum in the late 60s, which is communion in the hand. Which, uh, if you're wondering why this becomes a, an issue, this is an issue because, first of all, the reason why this gets started, it gets started, I believe, in Belgium, if I'm not mistaken. It starts there because there is this idea that in the in early church, this is this is the way things were done. And it was done, by the way, in various places, up until about the 8th or 9th century, then it died out. Eight, nine, eight or ninth, eight, in other words, 8 or 900s. And so under the justification of this idea, people started doing this. However, you had bishops complaining about it, so Rome issued a document saying this was an abuse and ordering people to stop it and, and uh, giving the bishops authority to stop it. As you're going to see, it's just ignored. And in fact, what's going to happen, as you're going to see, is that the bishops wind up seemingly losing control and eventually just sort of legalizing what had been known as an abuse. And the reason why, by the way, the reason why, by the reason why this is considered an abuse, of course, is because it seems to indicate people don't believe in the real presence. If you're handling the body and body of Christ like it's just something you handle, it seems irreverent. And so there's more breakdown in terms of ritual and gesture in terms of the liturgy. Uh, in 1970, the, the CDW, the Congregation for Divine Worship, issues another document, the Turgice Instaurationis, Restoration of the, of the Liturgy. Again, uh, targeting abuses, targeting uh, all those things I've mentioned so far, people writing prayers, Eucharistic prayers, and putting them in the liturgy. Uh, targets, you can actually get a sense of what's going on, what's going wrong with the liturgical reforms from reading these documents, because they're trying to forbid these things, and it doesn't really work for a variety of reasons. 
But Liturgic A and Storazioni, this is 1970. Again, they're trying to rein in abuses as best they can. Again, it doesn't really work immediately. The worst abuses won't be curbed until the times of, of John Paul II. For a variety, for a reason, partly a reason I'll mention in a second. And then finally, in uh, 1970, another one in 1973, to bring us to the end of the period we're covering here in 1974, Immense Caritatis, which is on Eucharistic ministers, because of course there's great confusion about this, as well as everything else. And in that, that's the document where basically Rome accedes to the idea that, yeah, communion in the hand is okay. So, and this is pretty much the, 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 what happens in this period. A lot of things that were considered to be wrong become sort of um, through basically rampant disobedience accepted by Rome. And in fact, you're going to have uh, uh, Una, Voce, Una Voce complain about this, that bishops' conferences simply wind up legalizing abuses without trying to correct them. And in fact, to understand what's going on with the liturgical reform, one of the things we need to know in the background of this is the dynamic between Rome and the various national bishop com bishops' conferences. One of the things that's going on is that at Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council promoted this idea of collegiality, which in practice means having, at least according to the bishops, is having Rome get off their backs. <laughs> and in particular, it called for cooperation in terms of creation of national, bishop con national bishops' conferences so they could set policies for bishops in a single region. And so what happens is that Rome will, promote, will promulgate this, the, promulgated the new missile in 1970. It gave authority uh, for translating these things, the original Latin text of the new missile, to these bishops' conferences and gave them effectively their authority and to the individual bishops to implement the reforms. And this was kind of, this is a very important thing to understand because one of the things that's going to happen with the traditionalists is they're going to want, because Rome, as we're, well, we're going to see, Rome's a little ambiguous, but the bishops are almost going to immediately do two things. The permission they've gotten to use the vernacular will become mandatory. They almost all of these bishops' conferences basically say it's mandatory everywhere, and a lot of them will basically order uh, order the, the suppression of the old right. And, uh, and that's something to keep in mind, because what's at stake here is, well, I hate to split it in these terms, power. The, the bishops think they, they've gotten a little more power in their own diocese by getting Rome off their back with the liturgy, and this is one of the reasons why they're going to be so... And I put this, they're going to be so contemptuous of traditionalists. And yes, it's partly because traditionalists can be, we'll get to this in a moment, they can be crude, and yes, they can be kind of angry. Yes, that is true. Some of them, not all of them. But it's also because what looks like, you know, to the traditionalists, an exception to this rule, looks like, to them, going over their heads of the Pope to get an exception to have the Mass, which we'll come to in a moment. The old mass, I mean. So this is in the background of all this stuff. It still, it, this still existed today, by the way. Uh, there are bishops who just see traditionalists as people who want to subvert their authority by going over their heads to Rome. It's still a source of big tension. And in fact, you're going to have traditionalists beginning to organize more and more because after 1970, of course, you're having the clock is beginning to tick because in 1970, the mass is supposed to start going into effect. And you're going to have... You know, uh, well, you're going to have increasingly shrill criticism of the new Mass and of Vatican II by traditionalists. Uh, uh, Annabelle Bonini will take particular exception to uh, 
two criticisms because he's, of course, the leader of the new reform on that commission, the concilium that uh, is putting it into practice. And when uh, traditionalists have a big pilgrimage to Rome in 1970, uh, he notes in his memoirs all the nasty things that they say. And they say some nasty things about the new missal. Um, they repeat a lot of the things that we've heard already from the uh, sort of higher level critique, theological critique of the new mass, but in more crude form. Uh, for example, in his memoirs, Bonini quotes uh, one of the organizers of the Rome pilgrimage, the traditionalist pilgrimage, which went to Rome on uh, the feast of feasts of Saint Peter and Saint Paul in 1970, and he quote this is his quote: one of the organizers, a Mrs. Gertner, supposedly said that the quote Montini Mass is heretical, and that the Pope regards us as rebels. That is not our fault. Unquote. And that's going to become increasingly common. Uh, unfortunately, you're going to get people saying things like this, uh, and it is going to it's going to it's going to make things worse. Obviously. Uh, not just Rome, but Paul VI, not just Annalba Bonini, but also Paul VI will take these criticisms of the new mass and of Vatican II. He sees them as essentially inseparable very, very personally. Uh, for Paul VI, these are the two main legacies of his, uh, of his pontificate. And he'll actually be very sensitive, as will Annabel Bonini, to criticisms like the one I just mentioned. A lot of traditionalists like to call the new mass Protestant. And this touches a sore point. Uh, with Annabelle Bonini and Paul VI, because I mentioned before, they wanted to have the new liturgy be adaptable to modern people, to modern times. They also had the idea that it should be more amenable to Protestants. The idea was if you make it a little less, well, literally, a little less Catholic, it'll be appealing to to Protestants, literally. I mean, at least, well, at least according to um, one of Paul VI's friends, a writer named Jean Guitton, gave an interview much later in the 1990s. And he claimed that one of Paul VI's uh, purposes of the reform was to make the old mass less Catholic. Uh, it was too Catholic. He thought it was too forbidding to Protestants. And he wanted to, you know, take the hard edges off it, I guess, if you want to put it that way. And so, uh, and Bunini, you know, wrote in his memoirs, he thought that everything, everything should be removed from the old mass, from the liturgy, that was a barrier to Protestants. In other words, they thought of the liturgy as primarily being an evangelization tool, and of course, that's not the way traditionalists see it. And this, of course, again, leads to some of these more um, imprudent uh, accusations among traditionalists, and it will be a harm to their cause for that reason. And in fact, this is uh, all the more reason for this, because everything, and to be fair to them and to Paul VI and to Rome at this point, everything is still in pretty much a lot of confusion, even in the early 1970s, even as Rome is trying to reign in the chaos. So much so that by 1973, Paul VI is actually kind of sort of publicly calling for uh, the restoration of Latin in the new Missal. He suggests at a general audience in 1973 in Rome that Gregorian chant, could be restored for the ordinary parts of the liturgy. And the next year, he actually issues a book of chants called Jubilate Deo for the Mass. And so they're trying what they can. I'll talk more about Rome's limitations and problems next time, but they have them, and they are at least doing some things. We'll judge a little better next time whether that's enough or not, or whether they're doing the right things. And so at the same time, you have this, again, the clock's ticking, as I mentioned before. I, I mentioned that Rome's promulgation in 1970, the new missile, meant that it was to go into effect the next year. 
And so you're going to have uh, groups like Una Voce scrambling to try to get some exemption from this because what's going to happen is virtually almost immediately, even before the missile goes into effect officially, the Latin one, you know, bishops' conferences will try to get ahead of this uh, in order to ingratiate themselves with Rome. And so uh, you're going to have, in, um, in 1970, the French bishops declaring that, yes, uh, the old mass uh, is going to be suppressed. Uh, the only conditions will be, uh, 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 only be allowed for older priests only on two conditions. Uh, they have to get the permission of their ordinary, and they have to uh, celebrate it without a congregation. And in fact, uh, next year, 1971, the Congregation for Divine Worship, in other words, the curial department of the curia, which deals with worship at that point, uh, issues a notification saying that, yes, the old rite is to be, basically that the old rite is not to be allowed, except under the basically those two, those two conditions, uh, if you get the permission of the ordinary and to have it done without a congregation. And so the rest of the bishops' conferences outside of France begin to take this idea and run with it. Uh, the next one to pronounce they're probably going to do this are the, the uh, bishops of the UK in 1971, which leads to uh, a little bit of scrambling on the part of Latin mass groups. And so what happens is, and this is actually a good story that traditions like to tell, is that knowing this is coming in the UK in 19, end of 1971, the Latin mass society of the UK starts reaching out to uh, prominent Catholics. Um, people like Graham Greene, the novelist. People like um, Ralph Rafe Richardson, the actor, who's also a Catholic. A few other people like this. To sign a petition petitioning Paul VI for an exemption uh, from this, uh, from the, the coming ab uh, suppression of the old mass. And this is the, the story, if you haven't heard this, of the so-called English indult, or the Agatha Christie indult, because they wind up reaching out to people and getting the signatures of about, um, I don't know how many people here, a couple dozen people, maybe 30 people or so, uh, of a petition which they submit to the, um, to the London Times, in July 6, 1971, in which, and I should mention, the names of these people, the people who signed this petition, uh, most of them aren't Catholic. You have people from all sorts of walks of life, uh, novelists, mostly artist types. You have the uh, art historian Kenneth Clark, if you know who that is. You'll have a couple of classical musicians, uh, 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 an opera singer, people like that. You will even have people who are from other, other Christian faiths, Christian denominations, even some people who are not uh, Christians at all, like Iris Murdoch, the, uh, the novelist and philosopher. And the, the, uh, the, the petition makes a plea, which they also have the Cardinal of Westminster deliver to Paul VI. And I want to read this because it's kind of a good, uh, kind of a good, you know, uh, it's an interesting story. And so the text of the appeals goes like this. If some senseless decree were to order the total or partial destruction of basilicas or cathedrals, then obviously it would be the educated, whatever their personal beliefs, who would rise up in horror to oppose to possibility. Now the fact is that basilicas and cathedrals were built so as to celebrate a rite which, until a few months ago, constituted a living tradition. We are referring to the Roman Catholic Mass. Yet, according to the latest information in Rome, there was a plan to obliterate that Mass by the end of the current, current year. One of the axioms of contemporary publicity, religious as well as secular, is that modern men in general, and intellectuals in particular, have become intolerant of all forms of tradition and are anxious to suppress them and put something else in their place. But, like many other affirmations of our publicity machines, this axiom is false. 
As time goes by, educated people are in the vanguard where recognition of the value of tradition is concerned and are the first to raise alarm when it is threatened. We are not at this moment considering the religious or spiritual experience of millions of individuals. The right in question, in its magnificent Latin text, has also inspired a host of priceless achievements in the arts. Not only mystical works, but works by poets, philosophers, musicians, architects, painters, and sculptors in all countries and epics. Thus, it belongs to universal culture, as well as to churchmen and formal Christians. In the materialistic and technocratic civilization that is increasingly threatening the life of the mind and spirit in its original creative expression, the word, it seems particularly inhuman to deprive man of word forms in one of their most grandiose manifestations. The signatories of this appeal, which is entirely ecumenical and non-political, have been drawn from every branch of modern culture in Europe and elsewhere. They wish to call to the attention of the Holy See the appalling responsibility it would incur in the history of the human spirit, were it, were it to refuse to allow the traditional mass to survive, even though this survival took place side by side with other liturgical forms. And in fact, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this indult gets its name because probably the most prominent uh, uh, signatory of this uh, appeal was Dame Agatha Christie, the great uh, novelist, uh, mystery novelist. <laughs> and so the story goes, when Cardinal Heenan of Westminster presented this petition to Paul VI, he was looking over the list of signatories, and he, when he came upon her name, he supposedly exclaimed, Ah, Agatha Christie, and signed the document, granting an exception for small groups of people. Every, I won't go through it. It's a very, very limited exception, but they get it. And this uh, odd thing about this, uh, how many non-Catholics appreciated the significance of the old rite. In particular, I want to give praise, by the way, because I have friends in the Church of England or the Episcopal Church. Dame Agatha Christie, of course, was a, a, a pious Anglican, and there were even two bishops of the Church of England. Yes, two Anglican bishops signed this document. So that's a funny twist and turn here that a couple of Anglicans uh, were uh, partly responsible for uh, getting, keeping the old mass from being suppressed. But it was a very, very tenuous foothold, despite all this. The next year, when they held their first mass in Westminster in 1972, the Latin Mass Society of the UK, over 2,000 people showed up in Westminster Cathedral to uh, witness this. Much to the consternation of Cardinal Heenan, as I, as I might mention, again, they thought of this as being an exception. They thought this was going to die away. They didn't expect so many people to show up, and they actually didn't like it, for reasons I'll come to in a moment. And in fact, as you get closer and closer to 1974, because it takes about three years for the missiles to be translated and then put into effect, but it's by 1974 when you finally get most Episcopal conferences uh, taking on board the new rite, and effectively beginning to um, instruct that the old right be suppressed. And so what happens is by 1973, you start to get challenged to this by Una Voce. In particular, in 1973, the Swiss bishops of Switzerland basically order the suppression of the old mass. They issue a formal, I believe, a formal canonical challenge to this in 1973. At the same time, you have all these overtures going on in Rome to try to restore. They're thinking they might restore some Latin to the old missiles, you know. But can you really trust Rome to enforce that? They haven't enforced anything else. They don't know what to do. And so, Una Voce at this point uh, comes to a turning point in their in their uh, in their institutional life because 
1974, their uh, fifth annual Congress, they basically make a decision. They basically say that they pretty much are not going to fight that battle anymore. They say they're not going to try primarily to shore up the new mass. They're going to focus their activities basically all on the old right. Their primary goal will become from this point on essentially trying to get the old right restored, trying to have it at least again, uh, in certain circumstances, so people can uh, worship, and to restore it to the parity they, they believe it deserves. And this is sort of agreed upon in 1974, which is kind of the year, kind of a, you know, we're going to stop off here in a second, is, uh, I, I, again, in some ways a turning point, as you'll see, although it doesn't have anything to do with the Una Voce in particular. But it's momentous, um, because their relationship with Rome gets really rocky in the 1970s. In 1974, Eric VII will meet with the, uh, both the, the secretary for uh, the Congregation for Divine Worship, James Knox, and the sostituto, the substitute, the second-in-command, if you like it, the Secretary of State, who are all, of course, um, on the side of the liturgical reform and are dead set against basically having any exceptions for the old mass. When Knox meets, when, excuse me, when the Seventham meets with Knox in 1974, he tells him point blank that the old mass is valid but illicit. And he also tells him that the English indult was a, quote, a source of embarrassment to other Episcopal conferences, and indicates them he thought the English bishops had exceeded their authority. In his mind, Rome, again, Rome, not necessarily Pope Paul VI, but Rome had already decided this question was settled, it was over you people should just obey. And in fact, when he mentioned the English indult being a source of embarrassment to other Episcopal conferences, presumably he means it's embarrassing because it seems to go back on that deal, if you remember, that the Vatican basically struck with the Episcopal conferences, that, hey, we're going to let you, we're not going to look over your shoulder while you're implementing this reform. So it's upsetting, this idea they've gotten this indult to a lot of people, for reasons that aren't necessarily theological or even having to do with the liturgy per se. But one thing becomes clear is that Knox uh, despises Una Voce and all other traditionalists. Later in the decade, he will refer to, the, refer to them as, quote, disobedient people. And so, having gotten his meeting with Knox, which didn't go well, the Savantham also meets with the Sostituto, Monsignor Bellini. And I have to read this. Um, uh, Giovanni Benelli, that's actually not Monsignor, it's Archbishop, excuse me, excuse me, the esteemed Giovanni Benelli. And they have a three-hour meeting, more than three-hour meeting, in which they discuss these matters, and what the seven of them wants is for at least them to talk to him about what we can do to see if we can make any sort of provision for these people who want this whole mass. Now, after the meeting, they, uh, the seven of them tries to write a follow-up letter to Benelli, and I want to read something to you. Because this is very important. We're going to end with this, to me. And it goes like this. This is, his, this is uh, De Savantham in his letter to Benelli, the uh, person he's trying to li liaison with. I don't think he ever gets a meeting with uh, Paul VI while he's still alive. But um, this, is what, this is what he's recounting, what Benelli said to him in their meeting. And this is what he says. Remember, okay. So it says, Your Excellency has urged us to espouse as a matter of conscience the new forms of the church's public cult, promulgated in the course of these last years by the Apostolic See and the Episcopal Conferences, under the authority of the Holy Father conferred by Christ. 
you have reminded us of our Lord's words, what you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Graze my sheep, confirm your brethren, all quotations from the Bible. And you insisted on the point that, for the government of the church, Christ had given to Peter and to his successors a charisma which is to be considered as a gift, both unique and indivisible. Although the character of irreformability only attaches to definitions promulgated ex cathedra in matters of faith and morals, the assent due to the acts of the sovereign pontiff ought equally to express itself in humble obedience to those, those of his acts which merely concern the discipline or other non-doctrinal aspects of the government of the church. For there also, you said, it is the same one, an indivisible charisma, which guarantees that all these acts cannot but be ordered towards the true and certain good of the church. Consequently, you could only consider as reckless and irreconcilable with a proper ecclesiology all demands or initiatives which implied that the utility of such and such an act of government duly promulgated by the reigning pontiff or under his authority could be a subject of discussion or even contestation. If that's a lot of words for you, let me, let me spell it out what the Sabbath is describing as Benelli's position. Basically, he's saying that the Pope has a personal charisma, which all but guarantees that his, that his uh, you know, um, prudential decisions will all be good. And that anything that implies that he might have made a mistake is essentially disobedience. That's effectively what he's saying. At least as far as I read it and understand it. This is now just one other passage from this letter. This is, this is uh, DeSantis expressing his opinion of Benelli's position. We have felt in duty bound to express to your excellency our disquiet, faced with such an interpretation of the promise given to Peter and to his successors. In our humble opinion, the assistance of the Holy Ghost enjoyed by the popes and the councils ought not to be assimilated to a charisma, a personal gift, the impulsions of which only engage him or her, who is its direct object. It is true that the conciliar constitution, he means Vatican II's constitution, on divine revelation speaks of, quote, the sure gift of truth received by the bishops through the Episcopal succession. But there one is speaking only of the gift necessary to ensure that the bishops, when interpreting and announcing the revelation in accordance with the tradition of the church, may fully safeguard the depositum of the faith. The church has never taught, we believe, that in the acts which concern ecclesiastic discipline or government, popes or bishops are exempt from any error, or judgment, area of judgment, or from any default of will. Apart from this, this sure, apart from this sure gift of the truth, the very concept of a charismatic inspiration being attributable to all acts of papal government appears to us to be extremely dangerous. Would it not confer on each pope absolute power over all the institutions of the church, untrammeled by anything laid down by his predecessors, who, however, had acted under the same charismatic impulsion? Thus, the liturgical rites, the rules of the monastic orders, even the structures of the church's hierarchy, as well as the entire positive law of the church, could they not at any moment be encroached upon by the reigning pope without his having to be mindful even of the most solemn confirmation thereof by one or several of his predecessors? You made only one condition, that that which in the bimillenary bimillennial uh, tradition of the church is fundamental and immutable be left intact. But here again, i.e., in defining that which in the tradition is fundamental and immutable, it will be once more be the reigning pope who, by virtue of his charisma, will, would alone have the last word. Now, what he's basically saying is you're making the pope into an oracle who's basically whose whims decide all questions in the church. And that he's basically trying to correct 
uh, Archbishop Benelli. Might seem like an imprudent thing to do, which, by the way, DeSavathan is right. <laughs> uh, Benelli's suggestion is completely wrong. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, in the, the First Vatican Council's documents on the Pope's authority, which suggests anything like this. He is making, he is making way too strong a claim for uh, the Pope's authority, to be bluntly honest. Now, I know it's only part of his letter. I don't want to make this too long. I want to read you part of Benelli's response to the Sabbath. Because basically what he's saying is, the Pope has complete authority. You have to obey. That's it. And this is his, I'll read just a couple of parag a few paragraphs of his response, just to give you where things stand with the lay part of this movement by 1974. I have duly received your long letter of 26th October. I have read it with pain. This is Monsignor Benelli talking to Eric the uh, Sabinthum. You reiterate unceasingly the same arguments to withhold in effect compliance with that which is clearly wanted by the Church and by the Holy Father himself. The loyal and trusting adoption by all the faithful of the Roman Rite of the Rite reformed under his authority in an application of the orientations laid down by the Council. The Sovereign Pontiff, for grave, reason, grave reasons of which he alone is judge, has thought that he should not dispense any longer from the obligation of such adoption, and that contrary custom may not be invoked in the specific context. What, then, is the true motive for the obstinacy with which you call for the maintenance of the old rite when the new one, used according to the established norms, allows the sacrifice of Christ to be celebrated with dignity, and in the last analysis in a very traditional manner? You insist on the fact that this does not imply a refusal of a liturgical reform, and even less of the Second Vatican Council. He's actually accusing him of questioning the Second Vatican Council. I, and this is him going on. I would hope so, but I must point out that the reference which you quote provides daily proof to the contrary. In any case, the will of the Holy Father, whose mission is to guide the whole, uh, whole of the people of God, is manifest. I must therefore observe with bitterness that after three, after the three and a half hours during which I endeavored to clarify matters with you, you have still not understood or admitted that the habitual obedience to the Pope, that the habitual obedience to the Pope, even when he does not speak ex cathedra, is and has always been an elementary duty for all the sons of the Church. On this point, I cannot reopen any form of dialogue. I would merely invite you kindly to consult, in all humility and serenity, a good catechism approved by the legitimate ecclesiastical authority. So his, basically his message is, the Pope says this is so, any criticism is a criticism of him, of liturgical reform, and the Vatican Council, and anything else is just pure disobedience. Shut up and obey. Now, look at his answer to his letter, Benelli, Archbishop Benelli. At a time when there are theologians who are writing books denying not just papal infallibility, but the infallibility of the church as a whole, when there are priests and bishops and laymen openly defying the church's teaching on contraception and marriage, when there are people literally writing Eucharistic prayers and shoving them into liturgy, when their people are literally substituting uh, secular literature for scripture readings at the Mass, when all these things are going unpunished, 
You know what the real problem in 1974 is? People asking for the old right. There, my friends, is true disobedience. There are people who even implicitly want to get rid of Vatican II, want to get rid of the liturgical form. They're the real problem in the church. Now, if you get from my hint of my voice here that I think that's a bunch of insert your four-letter word, what you have just heard in that letter is a textbook case of what is sometimes claimed and is truly claimed to be a problem still in the church. That is clericalism. That is the complete contempt and utter despising of the faithful when they humbly, and by the way, yes, there are some traditionalists who don't do this humbly. I get it. Eric de Saventham was not one of them. Perfectly courteous, an intelligent, educated person. And just for imagine for one second, by the way, imagine for one second, if a curial official like Archbishop Bonelli can treat someone like the Saventham this way, someone with a PhD, someone who is, uh, again, a learned person, successful in the world. What do you think would be the response of a bishop if an ordinary person in their diocese, say someone, uh, that would be a, a bad, someone who's a bus driver, humbly just goes and asks, writes a letter to the bishop, please, can I, my mother's just died, can I have the funeral mass in the old rite? What do you think he's going to say? He's going to say no. And I'm not making that up, by the way, just for emotional appeal. That is exactly what happens. People ask the bishops for this stuff, and they just shut them down. Why? Well, obviously, because they are disobedient people. Nothing more. Now, that's kind of a depressing place to stop in, in, in this episode, but we're going to stop here in 1974. Seems like things are coming to an end, perhaps, in 1974, except we have left out the other half of the story so far. We have left out, because you can't have a movement without the lady, but you also cannot have a traditionalist movement and save the old mass without clergy willing to risk this charge of disobedience, who are also, of course, even more, you know, it's even a greater charge for them because they do take clergy more particular vows of obedience to their bishop. And I, I, by the way, I do not mean, I did not mean, by the way, to say that disobedience is great. Uh, anything I've said so far, don't let people say this. Um, but in a time of confusion, in a time of just raw confusion, I, I obviously object to the way the hierarchy had treated these people. But next time we're going to find out the other half of the story, as I said. When a few handful of priests and bishops, a couple of bishops, more than one, yes, I know, the elephant in the room is the SSPX, but there's more than just Marcel Lefebvre involved in this. Also sort of uh, basically help the old mass survive in the first 10 years or so after the council. So thank you guys for listening. Take care, all of you. May the uh, Holy Trinity bless you all wonderfully and keep you in God's grace and peace. See you next time.